Father, we come now again and we ask you to send your spirit to work through our hearts. We praise you that your spirit is within us if we have trusted in Christ as our Savior. So we ask that we would put off the flesh, that we would kill our flesh daily. Help us not to live on the past victories, but help us to every day to get up, realize we are at war. This is not peacetime. This is not a time to kick our feet up and live a life of luxury, but to recognize that your kingdom is at hand and that what we do now will bear eternal significance. Help us now. Help me to speak clearly your words, your thoughts. Help everyone here to receive them and to be good listeners. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. They were on the run together for their very lives. Some nights they would spend out underneath the stars, while other nights were spent in dark and cold caves. But wherever they went, they had to stay on the move. Why? Because the king was after them. He wanted them dead. Why did he want them dead? Because he knew that his reign was coming to an end. His days had been prophesied to be numbered, which meant that his kingdom would end and the crown would soon pass to another. For this king had sinned against God by failing to obey him. But instead of accepting God's judgment, King Saul became obsessed with killing the very one who God had chosen to take his place. And so he hunted David and David's mighty men, hoping to end their lives in order to prevent God's plan from coming true. And so they hid. They fled as King Saul pursued them. And one of these mighty men, his name was Uriah, who had pledged his life in the service of protecting David. Uriah vowed to protect his anointed and future king at all costs, and his loyalty would create a bond that went deep as they fled from evil King Saul, mad his mad crusade. Now eventually, just as God said, King Saul's life came to an end, leading David to becoming the absolute sovereign king over the entire kingdom. And in response to his mighty men's bravery and loyalty, he gave them positions within his kingdom. Now the years passed, and King David's kingdom expanded its rule and reign as God's blessings just seemed to pour in upon him. The house of David grew. He had countless wives and numerous children. He was considered by all to be a truly blessed man. He was rich. His enemies were fearful of him, and he was able to drive them back as they would conquer them over and over. But then one spring, at the time when kings would typically lead their armies out to fight, because after the long winter, they weren't going to fight in winter, surely. In the spring, they would lead their armies out to fight. David decided to stay home, which was quite strange since this wasn't what a king was supposed to do. A king was supposed to lead his army. It was his duty as the king to lead them. It was his responsibility And then, as David remained back, not fulfilling his responsibility, in his idleness, in the quietness of his kingdom, we read in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12 of the king's gaze that would forever shake his kingdom. 
If you have your Bibles, turn there, and I'm going to read starting in verse 2. I'll give you a moment to turn there, because we're going to read quite a bit here, so you may want to follow along. It's not going to be up on the screen. Here's what happened. Late one afternoon, after midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of his palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He then sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. And she had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I am pregnant. Then David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. And then he told Uriah, go on home, relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace. But Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace and guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, What's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Uriah replied, The ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. Well, stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited him to a dinner, and he got him drunk. But even then, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to sleep with his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, Station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest. Then pull back so that he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. And when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, in verse 26 we read, she mourned for him. And when the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. And so then in chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, it reads, So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. And the story went, There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle, and the poor man owned nothing but one little lamb that he had bought. He raised that little lamb, and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guests. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. Then David 
said, Then Nathan said to David, You are that man. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And thus ends the reading of the word of God, the maker of the heavens and the earth. The account of King David's fall that we just read from 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel 11 and 12 are remarkable, and it offers invaluable insight into our own lives that we cannot afford to ignore. It's a very important lesson that we must learn from David's failure. For in David, we see a man whom the Bible describes as someone who's a man after God's own heart, and yet he failed miserably. And so there's much we can learn from the account of David's failure. Because with David's failure, if we learn the lesson, it will both help us avoid and respond to the own failures that we will have in our lives. And so this morning, we're going to look at the fall of King David, and we're going to see how we can learn from his mistakes. And actually, we're looking at this this morning because it kind of serves as a narrative wrap-up of what we've seen the last several weeks in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 32. If David had understood the truths of what Jesus taught there, none of this ever would have happened. And so this morning we're going to see three things from 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. We are going to see how we can avoid a king's fall. And to do so, we must do three things. We must understand the nature of sin, the nature of rebuke, and finally, the nature of grace. A few weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' explanation of the law in Matthew chapter 5. And what did we see there? We saw how Jesus said, you know what, if you just follow the letter of the law, you're still guilty. Because if you sin in your heart, that makes you just as guilty. This is why Jesus said, if you harbor hatred in your heart towards your brother, you're a murderer. If you lust after somebody in your heart, you're an adulterer. And Jesus says this because he realizes that anger is the seed that germinates into murder. He realizes that lust is the seed that germinates into adultery. The illustration we used back when we looked at this was the small acorn which turns into the oak tree. So small, but when that thing grows, it's massive. And so too does anger and lust grow into massive, devastating results. And this means that within the heart of every person lies every seed of every sin. It doesn't need to be planted there. It's already in your heart. And if you water it, if you nurture it, if you give it the right soil, make no mistake, as David made, it will germinate. And this is an idea that we really don't like to accept. We don't like to think of ourselves as having every seed of sin within our hearts. And why? Because even for those of us who are Christians, who believe we are saved completely by grace, through faith, in Christ Jesus' work upon the cross, you know what we do? We tend to base our image and our self-worth on being better than those around us. We absolutely do this. We tend to look at other people and think, I'm smarter than you, I'm better looking than you, I have a better career than you, I'm more humbler than you. I'm more intelligent than you. Get the idea. These are the kind of things that we bolster our self-image with in order to give ourselves uh, pride. That's what it it turns into. That's what our self-worth is found in. Our self-image and worth tends to be dictated by being one of the ins and not one of the outs. All right? You know what I'm talking about. 
You see this all the time with your unsaved and sadly sometimes saved coworkers and friends who talk this way all the time. If it wasn't for us around here, nothing would get done. You realize that? Like, we're, look at all these other coworkers. They're okay, but if it wasn't for us, this place would fall apart. We'd think this way, we talk this way. And you know I'm right, because if I wasn't, why does everyone seem to enjoy so much talking about that coworker who's always late, who seems to mess up all the time, and just doesn't seem to get it? It's because we like it. That's why we do it. It bolsters our self-image. It makes us feel good about ourselves, because by comparing ourselves to them, we look better. The same thing often, sadly, happens in churches, right? We've all seen this happen. We're the good, I'm the, me and these few over here, we're the good Christians. We're the ones who actually want to get into God's word. Everybody else around here is just playing church. Look at these phonies. They should be more like me. I mean, Jesus. <laughs> That's how we get. We start to think things like, my family is the only one that seems to actually serve around here. They should, everybody else should be more like me. We start to think like Elijah, that we are the only faithful one left which is not true at all. Unlike those other pretenders who just don't want to actually do church, they don't want to be faithful. And if this is something we aren't doing within the walls of our church, what is our temptation to sometimes do instead? Towards other churches, people not within the walls of our church. Sometimes what we do to build up our self-image is we compare ourselves to the other inferior churches out there. And so we build up our self-esteem and our image by looking down upon them by comparison. The truth is, this mentality is driven by a desire of popping up, propping up our image and self-worth. And the only way we can do so, hear me when I say this, the only way that we can do so, you realize, is by ignoring the true nature of sin. We have to ignore the, the reality that every sin is a seed that lies within our hearts. It's all there. This is also the case, too. If, so if you're not a prideful person who's going around being like, I'm so much better than you, you know? If you're not doing that, if you're the opposite, if you're kind of like an Eeyore-type person who's just sitting there constantly being like, oh, I'm just, I got nothing to offer. I'm terrible. Everybody's so much better than me. Even if you're that, what are you doing? You are still basing your image and self-worth upon comparing yourself to others. That's exactly what you're doing. And either way, the truth is, if you base your self-worth and image upon that comparison game, you're going to utterly fail to understand the darkness within your own hearts. The, the, The positive person who's got too much pride, they are naive in understanding that they really don't have anything to be prideful about because... They're way more, their heart is way more evil than they even get it credit for. The other person who's negative, who's always looking at themselves and seeing how they fall short, they're hopelessly naive too because they're actually worse off than they're even telling themselves that they are. You see that? Like, don't do the comparison game. Either way, you're going to lose. The Bible tells us that the world is not made up of the good guys and the bad guys. Every single one of us is the villain of the story. We are. And until you believe that, you're not going to be able to handle and deal with the sin that is within your heart. I like how the Russian philosopher Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, after the aftermath of World War II, here's what he said. He said, the line between good and evil passes not through states, 
classes, nor even political parties, but right through every human heart. He's right. You want to hear something a little bit scary? Actually, it's really scary. Here it is. The same thing that led to Hitler's Holocaust lied within the heart of Mother Teresa. And that means it lies within your heart and my heart. And if you don't believe that, you are constantly going to underestimate your opponent, which is sin. And if you know anything at all about boxing or martial arts, if you underestimate your opponent, you're done. They're going to they're gonna clock you. So you can't do that. All right? You have to be ready, and you cannot underestimate the opponent. And so and with World War II, they absolutely underestimated the opponent of the human heart, didn't they? At the end of the war, they were like, oh my goodness, how could this have happened? They looked at the Holocaust, and they were just blown away by it. After the Holocaust, the British historian Lord David Cecil, you're getting another philosophy quote here, here's what he said. The jargon of the philosophy of progress taught us to think that the savage and primitive state of man is behind us. But barbarism is not behind us, it is within us. He's right. And remarkably, I don't know if you realize this, but it's absolutely true. The barbarism of the Holocaust happened in highly sophisticated first world Germany. This wasn't some backwater third world country. No, this was the country that produced Mozart and Bach. And yet they also produced a dark genocide unlike that which the world has ever seen. Why? Because, as Jeremiah 17.9 tells us, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Well, David was a man after God's own heart. He was also a man with a heart that was deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And he absolutely underestimated that. He underestimated the opponent of his dark heart, and it did him in. And if that's not the case, how else do you explain what David did? He stole his war buddy's wife. And after he failed to trick Uriah into thinking that the child was his, which is that's some shady stuff, all right? David then sent Uriah back, do you realize, carrying the very letter that sealed his fate? Here you go, friend. Take this letter back to the general. Have fun. That's some cold, dark stuff. Uriah, one of David's mighty men, who had pledged his life to protecting David, was betrayed and murdered by the king. Why? Because the king wanted his wife. As if he didn't have enough already, which obviously did him other problems in his life. Now, how did David get to this point? There's two indications I found in this passage that answer that question. One, David wasn't where he should have been. And two, David's look turned into lust. His glance turned into a gaze. And it ultimately got him into trouble. And what a good lesson this is for us as Christians, is it not? Like, think about this. As Christians, our lives, we are in a never-ending springtime. It's wartime, all right? And we are not, because it's, because it's wartime, we are not to sit idly by, but we are to faithfully engage in the spiritual war that is at hand. We are to put on the armor of God, as Ephesians 6 commands us to do. We are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but to meet together all the more as we see the day approaching as the book of Hebrews commands. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. 
The same way that David ought to have been off at war with his men, the same thing is true for us as Christians. We ought to be out round with the people of God. We need each other. David ought to have been with his soldiers, and so too we ought to be with God's people. We are to be people of prayer, people of the word. We are not to stay home and sip upon the luxuries of life like a gluttonous and lazy king. We are at war. And so we are to be people whose bent is to serve God and others and not ourselves. And for if we live to serve ourselves, what we will be doing is we will be watering the seed of sin that lies within our hearts, which can lead us to places that we never thought possible, just as it did for King David. The second thing that led to David's sin was not only that he wasn't where he should have been, but he let his eyes remain where they shouldn't have been as his glance morphed into a gaze. I shared a few weeks back about how a man was training his dog to obey and what he would do, and he would throw the piece of food on the floor, and he'd say, no. And the dog would smell the food, look at it, and he'd go right for it, and boom, back of the head with the newspaper. And eventually, when the dog finally understood how this worked, the master noticed something quite interesting. What would the dog do? When he'd throw the piece of meat on the floor and say no, the dog would just keep its eyes right on the master. It would not turn and look at the food because the dog realized something. The dog realized that if it even looked at the temptation, it would give into it. It would not be able to resist the urge. And so David, not realizing what even dogs realize, his look, his glance became a gaze, which then not only led to adultery in his heart, but actual adultery in his actions, which became a sin that he desperately tried to cover up. Which is kind of ironic, because we're here thousands of years later talking about that sin that he failed to cover up, right? It didn't work so well, which is a reminder for you and I that if and when we do sin, covering it up is the most foolish thing we can possibly do because all will be revealed sooner or later, whether in this life or in the life to come. All of our sin is going to be revealed. And so what we ought to do is not be foolish and try to hide from our sin. We must accept rebuke for our sin and repent of it so we can experience God's grace. And this leads us to our second point. To avoid a king's fall, we must understand the nature of sin, but secondly, the nature of rebuke. Back in 1 Samuel 13, the prophet Samuel had found King Saul to be as stubborn as a mule when it came to repenting. Saul's repentance was only skin deep. He didn't mean it. He was just sorry for the consequences of his sin. He wasn't sorry for what his sin had done to offend a holy God. And so here Nathan He is tasked to see how King David was going to respond to a kingly rebuke for his sinful behavior. And now to understand this scene, you need to know how things worked back in David's day. It wasn't a democracy, all right? Everything was dictated by just tons of executive orders. And one of the king's job was to rule as judge over the hard cases and to decide those verdicts. And so Nathan, here he comes all clever. And he comes to, Nathan, comes to the king, as he probably often did, with a special case on how it should be handled. And little did David know the case was actually him and his sin. And now, for Nathan, surely this probably would have been a scary thing, because if David wanted, he could have ordered Nathan to be executed right there on the spot. 
And so realizing this, and also hoping that King David would accept his rebuke, Nathan approaches David quite carefully and very cleverly. Like This is brilliant how he did it. Instead of barging in and shouting, what have you done, king, you sinner? You, you serious? This is sinful. Shame. He didn't do that, right? He's tactful about it. He's clever. He approaches David as was, as was common with a special case within David's kingdom that needed judgment. And so approaching him this way, David's defensive barriers didn't go up. And he was sitting there listening as a completely neutral person hearing the case. No defensive barriers at all. And so listening intently, David tells King David of a rich man who had many flocks and many herds, and of a poor man who had nothing but one little lamb. The poor man had spent his savings to buy this little lamb. He loved the lamb. This lamb ate from his plate and drank from his cup. In fact, as the text says, he cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. Then one day, a guest arrived at the rich man's house. And in David's day, if you weren't hospitable towards guests, I mean, this was a social obligation. So if you didn't do this, it would bring shame upon you in your house. But instead of doing the right thing and taking one of the many animals from his own flock, he was selfish and he took the poor man's lamb and he kills it in order to feed his guest. And so after telling the king this story, Nathan says, now my king, what should be done with this man? And upon hearing this story, David is livid. He's furious. First, he says the man must pay four times in his restoration, which was a good pronouncement. It was a good judgment to make because the law of Moses said that that's how it should be restored. But then David's anger becomes unhinged, and he shouts, Surely as the Lord lives, who did this, the man who did this, deserves to die. Now I want you to think deeply with me about this for a moment. Why did David respond with such strong zeal? You ever thought about that? Like this this is an overreaction, all right? Sure, what the rich man did was evil and wicked, but it's not a capital crime under the law of Moses. Not even close. So why does David respond with such fury? David is furious because as king, it was his sovereign duty to take care of and protect the people in his kingdom from injustice and abuse. But with Uriah and his wife Bathsheba, David failed miserably. And inside, David knows it. It's haunting him. It's eating him away as his conscience keeps alerting him to his sin, but then His wicked heart keeps trying to suppress it by perpetually justifying David's sinful actions. And this is precisely how the human heart justifies sinful abuse, is it not? When an opportunity arises to take something that isn't yours, whether that be money, power, or someone else's spouse, or to abuse somebody else, you know what our heart whispers to us? I deserve better than this. I deserve better. Look at all the sacrifices I've made. No one knows how much I've given. And now you know exactly how abuse happens within the walls of a church, sadly. It's this kind of thinking. It happens when pastors, deacons, or other church leaders justify their sin out of their self-pity and self-righteousness. 
Well, I only spoke abusively to that person because I'm just, honestly, I'm just sick and tired of everybody's constant criticism. Everyone else seems to appreciate me around the church except for my frustrated wife. And when we start to think this way, it is our way of being like David and going out upon the roof, which leads us right into temptation. And because of our self-pity, we easily allow our glance to turn into a gaze which results in succumbing to sin's temptation. And then what typically happens, we make matters worse by trying to cover it up. We try to cover up the sin just as David did. Why? Well, I'm far too important. It's just them. We have to protect the ministry around here. After all, and this is often told to victims of abuse, you don't want to mess up what God's doing, do you? You don't want to be the culprit for that. Let it go. Just be quiet. Victims are then made to think that if they point out these leaders' flaws, that they are the ones to blame for the collateral damage that ensues upon the ministry when that leader's sin is made public. And as we know, this couldn't be further from the truth. For as David came to find out, the cover-up of his abuse was actually worse than the original crime. David's pride in his self-importance led him to justify the sinful desires of his heart. And it wasn't until Nathan came along with his carefully crafted approach to address David's sin that David's eyes were finally opened to the deceitfulness of his heart. And so there with his defenses down, David in his guilt, erupts forth in anger towards this rich man who stole the poor man's lamb. Who is this man, David cries? And then looking David in the eyes, Nathan says, you are that man. If you listen closely enough and put your ear up to the text, you can hear the mic drop. (laughs) Because this was a mic drop moment. If there ever was one. And upon hearing Nathan's words, all of David's self-righteous justifications, what happens to those? They melt away right there on the spot. He's exposed. There's nothing he can do. All of those excuses his heart keeps offering up to justify his sin are silenced because Nathan understood the nature of rebuke. Nathan understood that you don't just walk up to somebody, point your finger in their face, and shout, sinner. All right? Because Nathan understood that that's a really stupid and self-righteous way of rebuking somebody if your goal is to actually see them repent and change. When we do that to someone, and we know this because we do it ourselves when somebody does it to us, what does it do? It makes the defense mechanisms go right up. Right or wrong, that's what happens. And when that happens, when you approach somebody with that blunt, tell you how it is kind of a way, You're not setting the person up for success. You're setting them up for failure. Yeah, sure, you told them the truth, but you did so in a way that they never could have heard you. They didn't have a chance. They didn't have a hope or prayer of accepting it. When you are direct and blunt with somebody about their sin, what you're actually going for, and pay attention to this, this is important, what you're actually going for is condemnation, not conviction, which leads to conversion. Instead of using your words to persuade them like Jesus did, you are using your words to self-righteously condemn the person, which is actually a way of trying to sit upon God's judgment seat, which is 
something you definitely don't want to try to do. And so this has at least two practical applications for us, all right? And I'll have to make this quick here. But one, when you confront someone for their sin, don't be a jerk, be gentle. We got enough jerks for Jesus around this nation that uh, have a little bit too much fun blasting people with the truth. And if you think your obnoxious, self-righteous behavior is going to help anyone, not only are you obnoxious and self-righteous, but you're deluded. It's not going to help them. And so pragmatically, what this means then is if the people you try to rebuke in your life tend to respond negatively to your rebukes, that's a very, very good indicator that you're not doing it gently, but you're doing it jerkily. It's a word. Just go for it. Let's go with it. If your life is full of people rejecting your corrections and rebukes, you need to realize something. It's not them. It's you. The second point here of application is is this, is that you need to find people who will regularly speak truth in a loving way into your life. I really, really like how Tim Keller puts this. He gets two reallys. That's how much I like this. He says, be a Nathan and also find some Nathans. That's a neat way to put it, isn't it? Be a Nathan and find some Nathans. Well, what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about, how, about this. There's going to be times when your wicked heart is going to deceive you and blind you from the truth. And when this happens, you are going to need some Nathans to come along and tell you, you're the man. In a clever but crafty way. In a loving way. In a way that seeks your repentance, not your condemnation. I'm serious here. If you are going to avoid a king's fall, you not only have to listen to these people, but you have to find them, and you have to give them permission to be a Nathan in your life. And when you found a few of these Nathans, do yourself a favor, and don't wait for them to come to you. Go to them. Get coffee with them. Sit down with them. Check in and ask them, are there any sheep in my life that I've stolen that I haven't seen? Is there any blind spots that I am not realizing? And if you want to avoid the pitfalls of sin, look, you've got to do this. This is absolutely important. This idea of lone wolf Christianity where I just work on my sin by myself and we don't ever talk to each other because judge not, bro, right? Like the culture says, that is completely foreign to what God's word commands us to do. We are supposed to be in each other's lives, not as a jerk for Jesus who enjoys keeping condemnation on each other, but in a way where we come along craftily, carefully, and gently and help each other grow in the grace of God. And to do this, we have to approach rebuke the same way that Nathan did. If you're going to do this, it's going to require at least two things and a whole bunch of them. It's going to require humility and grace, which leads us to our third point. To avoid a king's fall, we must understand the nature of sin, the nature of rebuke, and third, the nature of grace. David sinned, and boy, did David sin big time. Not only did he break over about half of the commandments through his adultery, coveting, lying, and murder, which actually makes him worthy of death, but, and I didn't realize this, if you pay attention to the text, it tells of how David 
actually ended up being responsible for the deaths of of a whole lot more people than just Uriah. I didn't realize this, but he did. In his scheme to take Uriah out, it says in the text, many other Israelite soldiers were killed. And what does David do then in response to seeing his sin? Well, he doesn't act like King Saul. No. David repents, and he throws himself upon the mercy and the grace of God. 2 Samuel 12, 13 tells us, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan said to David, remarkably here, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. How did God put away David's sin? Did he just forgive him? Did he just say, "Ah, no big deal, we all mess up, everybody trips? Forget about it. No, for God to forgive David's sin, to put away his sin so that he would not die, required a death from somebody else. It required the death of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. And the good news for all of us Davids who are gathered here this morning, because if you don't see yourself as a David, you are, Okay, But the good news for all of us Davids gathered here today is that the same death is strong enough. Christ's death is strong enough to put away all of our sin and give us life, everlasting life. Do you realize that every single one of us is the rich man in Nathan's story? We are. Which means, as David rightly said, Every single one of us is actually deserving of death. But, remarkably, God took his one and only precious lamb whom he loved so much, and he voluntarily did what? He gave him up for us to die. All of us rich thieves who deserve death. And because of this, when we repent of our sins, as David did, we access this forgiveness. It's given to us freely by grace. We access this putting away of our sin as the Lord did when David repented. And so this means, church, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. When you repent in the name of Jesus Christ, all of that goes away. Your self-image doesn't matter in the slightest because through the power of the gospel of Christ Jesus, you are exchanging your self-image for his perfect and holy image. And when you do this through repenting in his name and trusting in him as your perfect savior, Jesus, the lamb of God, who takes away all the sins of the world, takes away your sin too. And so this is the lesson we learn from King David and his failure. If we are going to not fail as David did, we must understand the nature of sin. We must understand the nature of rebuke. But third, we must understand the nature of grace and what powerful grace it is. Amen? Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you that even such a horrible failure like King David's, is now used for the good of your people. It is used to fulfill Romans 8.28. And so we praise you for that. We praise you that you don't heap condemnation upon us, 
as you rightly could do, but you correct us lovingly, graciously, and patiently, calling us to repentance through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I pray now that as we take the Lord's Supper, that we would examine ourselves, as Paul calls us to do, that we would look to you to create the clean heart in us, and not through our works, not through our selfish, selfishly self-motivated, self-righteous efforts, but through the efforts of Christ, who are imputed to us by grace through faith. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. At this time, we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper. Some of the gentlemen will be handing out. Uh, we have communion plates, and we also have the little communion cups in the back. If you want an all-in-one unit, you can grab that back there. But I want to read from us from the book of Psalms, which talks about David.